You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of this program. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Aaron Brin. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Well, welcome, Aaron. The first time we met was many, many years ago. Well, not that long ago, I guess, but uh, quite a few years ago, maybe in 2010, 2012. It was somewhere nine years ago. Wasn't it 11? Maybe, yeah, maybe it was 2011. And we met when we were both out at the historic site of Fort Parker. Do you remember that day? Yeah, I remember it very well. Yeah. And so we were out there with the 106th Culture Committee. and 107th. 107th. I'm sorry, 107th Culture Committee. And we were, um, and we were there also with the Forest Service. And mm-hmm. so the Forest Service was doing a annual uh, get-together with the 107th Culture Committee. And that year they had decided to meet at Fort Parker. And so Marsha Fulton and myself were out there. Um, and it was just a great day on the site of historic Fort Parker. And I just remember being able to walk with um, the elders that were out there because there was a lot of elders that were part of that 107th Com- Culture Committee or still are. I don't know if it's still active. Um, but it was amazing to see um, and hear and listen to people talking about Fort Parker, not as a place of the past, but a place in the present. And I think that's the first time I actually realized that this place wasn't a historic site to Crow people, but it's a place that is active in memory. And uh, the elders were talking about their grandparents being there, their parents um, telling them about this place and stopping at this place, and they stop at the place, this place still. And uh, for those everyone out there who doesn't know where Fort Parker is, it's it is located about ten miles east of present day Livingston, Montana, and it was the site of the first Crow Indian agency that was in operation from 1869 to 1875. So, so it was just a great day, and and Marcia Fulton and myself um, talk about that day still quite often, and. And she was able to, uh, while I was walking the ground with some elders, she was able to sit with some Crow women and visit. And I won't tell her story about that because that's not my story to tell. But someday we'll have Marsha on and have her talk about that story because it's really powerful. But it was a powerful day. And and what are your thoughts about that day? Yeah, so most of the people that were there that day are gone now. So... That's, I guess that was the first thing that popped into my head when you, you brought that up. Um, 
right now the Crow tribe is pretty elder poor, I guess you could say. So, um, but that was a fun day. It, it was. It, I had a lot of fun, and I was like I said, I was kind of there by accident. Um, but I ended up in the newspaper. Oh, did you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There that was like now. that big timber newspaper article or something. Yeah, and we were. Um, yeah, we. I think we ate. We went to Big Timber afterwards, right? Right. Yeah, and we we're eating or something, and uh, the lady interviewed me because oh. I was just next to her. I don't think she wanted to interrupt people, so I ended up in that little pioneer, Big Timber pioneer or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but other than that, man, I was just there to listen. I yeah. learned a lot that day. Yeah. Boy, so did I. So did I. That was a great day. What a good experience that was. But um, so that's, I guess, the first time we met. And that so that was a great place to meet you, Aaron. And I know that you were thinking about doing some work with um, the history of Fort Parker for your master's thesis. But you didn't end up doing that then, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, I was kind of considering it. But then, I mean, frankly, it just wasn't my thing. You know, I, I, I didn't. It kind of was riddled with the whole colonization thing. And I just, I kind of wanted to do something that was purely crow, you know? Yeah. And, and so I just stepped away from it. I did try to pass the buck though to my buddy, Marty Lopez. And I was like, you should probably do, cause I think something should have been done from a crow perspective anyway, because Fort Parker is kind of unique. It's obviously named after an Indian guy, Elias Parker. And, um, right. Uh, my connection to Fort Parker, my intimate connection has nothing to do with Crow people. It actually has to do with a freed slave who I'm a descendant of. So um, it, that that was kind of interesting, but I always wondered why it was to the Crow. It was never considered. We didn't really consider it a real monumental place, you know, to our history. Absorkey was a little different though. The relationship mm-hmm. was different there. The second Fort Crow Parker. agency. Yeah. 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 So then, but Mission Creek just kind of seemed to be, for a lot of crows, was a place to avoid, you know. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Well, I hope someone takes that up and does do that that work. That would be interesting as well from the crow perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Marsha um, Fulton is still writing the book, but it's more of, uh, it's not from the crow perspective. It's from the, more the... Um, the white perspective. So, um, so it would be great, great to have both of those combined. But um, let me introduce you because I haven't done that yet. So, yeah. um, Aaron Aaron Bryn is a member of the Bzalaga Nation, a Big Lodge from the Big Lodge Clan, a child of the Whistling Water in Big Lodge Clan. He is also a member of the Nighthawk Dance Society. He was born in Sheridan, Wyoming, and was raised on the Crow Reservation Center Lodge in Reno District. Aaron studied at Salish Kootenai College and the University of Montana as an undergraduate and earned his master's degree from the University of Montana's Department of Anthropology. He most recently served as faculty in the Native American Studies and Tribal Historic Preservation Departments at Salish Kootenai College, but has recently accepted the position of Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Crow Nation. So congratulations. Yes, congratulations on your new Thank job, you. Aaron. Yeah. So in some ways, this new job will be a bit of a departure from teaching and what you've been doing at Salish Kootenai College. 
Um, but it, it sounds like a an excellent job for you and somebody with all the experiences in your, your background, not only a master's degree in teaching, um, but your other experiences out in the field. So for our listeners, though, tell us what a TIPO, which is short for Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, does. What does a TIPO do and what specifically will you do as, as a Crow Tribal Historic Preservation Officer? Well, there's kind of the NPS park service version of what we do but i think the truth is is we kind of border on this cultural cultural affairs and regulatory kind of we kind of are married to both nipa and the humanities you know it's so a national it's a, environmental protection agency yeah. act and then yeah and then some more of the humanity sides of things as well yeah public okay. relations and cultural affairs stuff so but on paper, what we do is we, we're compliance officers with anything related to cultural res- the impact of cultural resources on, res- on or within reservations. So, but uh, SHPOs can give us their authority and off-reservation projects too, which they typically do. It's, it, in fact, it's kind of a, it's normal now for the BLM, Forest Service, to, to reach out to us for certain things and um, – so our job is just to mitigate adverse effect to cultural resources. So, Aaron, for for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the term cultural resources, it's something that those of us who've worked in this field use all the time. But I think for a layperson, it's not always obvious. So, can you give examples of what cult what are cultural resources? Things that you would be worried about or involved in protecting and discussing impacts on? I would think the way most people in the business define them as uh, anything used, modified, or in relation to human behavior, right? And uh, there is, so it's archaeology, it's viewshed, it's landscape, it's um, the air, it can be the air. Okay, so anything that is... Can impact those things. Has some, some special significance to in your case, the Crow tribe in particular, would fall under well, cultural I think, resources. I think, yeah, but that's also where it starts to define differently. As Crow people, we define cultural resources or landscapes or anything as even places where cult- culture can be perpetuated. So nothing, nothing necessarily has to happen there yet, but it's the idea that it can happen there and that this can help in the perpetuation and per- preservation of cultural ideals and so that could be like landscapes or anything, you know. So we also deal with like native plants and uh, the harvesting of certain things in certain areas. So it's not not just limited to the way archaeology defines cultural resources because we, Absolutely. we define things a little different. So. Yeah, it's much broader than that. Okay, well, thanks for that definition. I think that'll help yeah, yeah, people that understand. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's what you mean by viewshed. Um, like if there's a, a view of the mountains and you don't want to put something up that would hinder that view because that's an important view. Is that what you mean by view shed? The look of something. The perfect example is on your way uh, from uh, Livingston to Big Timber on the interstate and you can see the crazy mountains. And then there's a gigantic mansion right below the mountains, right by the river. 
Oh, yeah. Most people look at the mansion and go, wow, it's a beautiful home. And I'm like, ah, that's in the way of the mountains. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But that everyone knows, a- every, that's almost like a landmark now, that house. Everyone knows where it's at, right on the Yellowstone River. So. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they're not a listener. Yeah. And <laughs> well, and if they are, we yeah. just, nice house. Um, but It's a beautiful home, yeah. <laughs> So you're telling me that the crow folks aren't building gigantic mansions in in front of these view sheds? No. no. Yeah, I kind of figured. So, so, you know, we were kind of, we've already kind of talked about the Montana Archaeological Society meetings. We've met, we've, you know, see each other there usually every year as well. But of course, in 2020, the meeting was canceled, understandably, um, because of COVID-19. But I've heard that they're going to reschedule um that we are going to try to go forward with the the 2021 uh conference but i guess that'll kind of we just have to kind of wait and see on that but at the 2020 conference um the Montana Archaeological Society conference it was going to be held in Polson which is on the Flathead um Indian Reservation kind of northwest montana and you were going to be a big part of organizing that conference along with Tim Ryan And you were going to have a focus, the conference was going to focus in on indigenous archaeology, which I was so excited about. So I was doubly bummed when they, when the conference got canceled because of that. But are you going to continue to do that in 2021? Is that kind of the plan to kind of do a redo of, of that? And so I guess I've got two questions. Is that the focus of the 21, 2021 conference? And then um, you're going to kind of focus on indigenous archaeology, and if so, can you kind of tell us about what is this idea of indigenous archaeology, and how did you come to this idea, and what are um, what is the practice of indigenous archaeology? You're going to put me right on the spot here. Well, <laughs> uh, you. I, you you keep saying what are you gonna do? You're, I think you're part of that too, aren't you? You're part of the society, so I think yeah, yeah. some yeah. saying what what the plans are. I'd like to I'd like to uh, just roll over everything from 2020 to 2021 and just go from there. Um, you know, we're not a huge society, so because we're not a huge society, we kind of have the liberty to do. I think have a little more mobility in how we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, more than other societies. So I think there's no reason for us. Obviously, I can't speak for the entire society. I'm on the board. Yeah. I think I'm actually the vice president. I think you are. I think you are too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we got that cleared up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it was kind of a, a weird thing. Like uh, Weber Greiser, who's the president, just said, hey, do you want to be vice president or vice chairman or whatever? And I was like, uh, sure. What do I got to do? And, and, he said, well, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> so I said, all right. So, but as, as I, I actually never heard a comp, like con, no one confirmed with me. Yeah. So I well, guess you guys are confirming it. So thank you. Okay, well, yeah. I, I, I accept. <laughs> good, and good. we have absolutely no authority yeah, to confirm it, but we are doing <laughs> but it. But anyway. we, do yeah. we will go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as far as like indigenous archaeology and, and um, what I believe it to be, um, in, a, in a weird way, I, hi- I hijacked the name and I made it an Instagram page. And um, we don't have a huge following, but we have a following and people are very loyal to it. But 
I, I stole the name because I was, and this will sound kind of confrontational, but I was kind of tired of the idea of indigenous archaeology being a philosophy. I thought it was, I think of it, it's an applied method of doing field work. It's not kind of this notion like, a, like a, this is how you should feel. It seemed it had a real like, um, this is how people should feel about it. You know, and I'm like, this is not, I don't want to get into the telling people how they should feel. Like this is a step one, two, three, and four of doing work and it's quality work. And um, Joe Watkins is kind of the godfather of indigenous archaeology. And I have a lot of respect for his work. And, but I, I think I define it a little bit different than he does. I don't think... To me, indigenous archaeology and the greater field of archaeology was always seen as like just part of this uh, community-based research idea and this um, working with descendant communities and giving a voice to Indian people. It's definitely that for sure, but I, I actually, I, I, I really thought of it as a different approach to the field of archaeology, that you could actually take this idea of indigenous archaeology and apply it to any form of archaeology and the outcome would be good, you know. So, uh, um, but I'd be lying if I said I had kind of a polished idea of what it was. That was kind of my secret mission of the society meeting was uh, when we were planning, um, I was asked like, well, can we put like a definition of indigenous archaeology in the poster? And I said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I want people to guess what it is. Like I want people who submit papers to to say this is what they think it is because I was kind of doing an experiment to see this is how most people define it versus this is how native people define it, you know. Um, But people, I I don't know if people thought that was negative or if it was bad or not. Maybe it was some kind of omen that it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) So, but they were having trouble, I think, getting people to submit papers, which, Mm. um, uh, which I think that was kind of the reason they didn't really know what what I meant by that, and and that was po- the point, though. The yeah, fact that people yeah. didn't know was part of the research I was doing. Right. You so know? I'm gonna and it's like informal research, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out a little bit and ask, in terms of what Joe Watkins has done, and you mentioned community based and including an in- indigenous perspective and voice. Could you just give us a little bit of a sense in how you think it's more than that or broader than that or well, different in some way? I guess when I when I say that, it's not an attack on anything he's done. Right. But I, I definitely think he thinks of his work, and I can't speak for him and I shouldn't, but he thinks of his work as archaeology, right? Right. And it's archaeology and he's doing archaeology and then this is the mission. So it's twofold, right? Where when I've tried to do work, I don't think of myself as an archaeologist. So I try to think of it from how tribal people would do this work and and asking certain questions. So archaeology has become a tool within that indigenous way of doing it, as opposed to archaeology Mm -hmm. incorporating an indigenous viewpoint. I'm not worried about that. And, and, no offense, but I mean, I could really care less what archaeology is no, doing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. That no, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's actually, you're incorporating archaeological 
questions or things that have to do with it into a broader indigenous way of coming to know knowledge or investigate something rather than the other way around, like you're saying, somebody who's trained as an archaeologist, and then they're trying to to just have this sort of mission or layer put on it. It's coming at it from different points of view, and it's embedding yeah, it within yeah. different systems of sort of getting information and coming to know things. So that that actually makes a lot of sense to me because one is mm. very academic and rooted in a in the uh, a perspective that tries to make archaeology into a hard science and doesn't necessarily look at other systems of knowledge. And I know when I've heard you talk, the way you approach a question or finding out what something is, there's all these conversations you have with people, with elders, and it's a very different way of approaching understanding something in the long run. It gives you different answers. Yeah, and I think in the traditional form of indigenous archaeology, it was always native people were supplemental information. Right. So you, right. you have this question, and then you, you take your approach, which is the same. It's either pedestrian survey or systematic excavation, and it's the same approach, right? And then they take native knowledge and they place it right on top of it. And I'm not, I'm not concerned with doing any of that. Yeah. You know, my, um, and that's no offense to archaeology. Um, uh, I, like I say, it's, I'm kind of, I have this weird love-hate relationship with myself in terms of am I an archaeologist or am I a preservationist? And do I just use archaeology to ask, answer some of those questions? Because there is benefit to archaeology. But there's so much baggage in terms of archaeological politics and, and the role of archaeology in, in all fields of science and in humanities that I just prefer not to embed myself in any of that. And that's, in a weird way, it's given me some license to, to be pretty critical of the discipline, but um, hopefully not, you know, in just like a critique, like just a hater kind of a way, but like something good will come out of it. And, right. and hopefully it's the restoration of human uh, the human aspect to the field of science of archaeology because it seems so distant sometimes and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah uh, we yeah. talk about that yeah. all the all the time it it seems like the people take the the people out of the story oftentimes in archaeology it's just data and numbers and there's no real narrative understanding of the past so to me i i love hearing that you're you're just able to use archaeology to answer these other important human questions that you're interested mm-hmm. in and it's a tool for you. And actually, I think that's sort of the best outcome of yeah. what archaeological information should be. It should be used to enrich our understanding of ourselves, our people, past things. So um, so I think that critique is part of a larger critique on archaeology in general, Aaron. So I think you're, I think you're going to find you have a lot of allies, whether they're specifically focused on indigenous archaeology or not, I think your perspective is maybe where archaeology is headed. At least that's that's something that I'm very interested in seeing. Yeah, you know, and, and kind yeah, of think, me too. thinking about how you, you know, um, do you call yourself an archaeologist or do you call yourself an anthropologist or do you call yourself something completely different as what you do in your work? I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think about that a lot too, Nancy, you do as well. And I know, you know, all of our colleagues, Aaron, that we work with, you know, think about that quite a bit. What is this? What do we call ourselves? Because like, you know, I've started calling myself an applied anthropologist or an applied historian because I I don't um, 
feel that I'm an archaeologist in the way I have a background and I have training in archaeology, but I don't go out and do archaeology as much anymore. And but I do more like what you do, you know, with the ethnographies and the oral histories and looking at documents and looking at um, talking to elders and and you know, those could be native elders or those could be non-native elders, but that's, so it's a, just a different way, but, but I still do archaeology and I still feel that it is archaeology in a way. So, so it is, that's a kind of an interesting thing to bring up, but I have a question for you, Erin, about that, that kind of, um, you know, I've been listening to some of your podcasts, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but you, you talked about this on one of your podcasts, how you have a degree in anthropology, and you work in the field of archaeology, um, but you're also a Crow person. You're, you um, are a member of the Crow tribe. And so you do research and go back home and do research. And, you know, how do you kind of mix together this identity as an anthropologist with being a member of the Crow tribe? And how does that help or hinder your work? a good question because it i thought it was a hard question when i first got into the field and i was always kind of dealing with this like i want to be authentic but i want to be good at archaeology and um this notion of indigenous archaeology falls right into this identity crisis right so yeah, yeah. i was doing a i was doing uh some research on tobacco planting gardens uh and I was I went to talk to some people in Crow and oh no, 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 no. I was doing some research on the dry head overlook. Um, this is what eventually led to my thesis stuff, but initially it was just kind of on some rock structures and I just went and talked to some people and they were like they laughed at me, like in the way I was asking questions and stuff. And they were like, Why are you talking like that? you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, I don't know, I'm just trying to do my job and they're like it sounds like your job is just to be a Crow Indian and the rest will fall in place, basically is what I was told. And once I kind of took that approach of shedding this, like, I'm a professional archaeologist, this is the questions I'm asking, and I'm building relationships with communities. Once I got rid of that and just relaxed and kind of just said, you know what, all my life I've been asking questions to my elders and to my relatives about certain aspects of our culture, and I've never had a problem with yielding information so why why am i adopting this kind of really sterile version of doing what i've been doing my whole life you know so once i did that it just seemed like everything started making sense um my job as an archaeologist is the understanding of material culture and in the past and so i'm going to use whatever tools are available to do that and if that means talking to my elders if that means the interpretation of native language and if that freaks people out a little bit in terms of taking me out of archaeology, that's the way we understand it. I'm totally okay with that. So the identity part of it and like how I balance that, it, that only lasted for a little while for like tell my first project. And I realized like, what am I doing? You know, why can't I just be myself? And then once I did that, it's fine. And I've been okay with it ever since. I've, yeah. I've, there was some insecurity at the beginning, but I'm a Crow Indian. I'm going to be a Crow, in, a Crow Indian. I'm not worried about really anything else. So, um, yeah. But it was there at the beginning, for sure. Right. Well, I think um, 
before Crystal gets to her next question, just to say it's it's um, probably for so many Native students wonderful to have examples, of your example and, and others like you, I think, in the field. The field benefits more and more from having folks like yourself become a part of it. You got an undergraduate degree and your master's degree, but you're kind of defining a new pathway through a program. And I, th- I think that benefits all the other students involved along the way. Um, I think that makes the discipline richer in the future. And clearly, MAS has invited you to be its vice president, so they must agree. <laughs> <laughs> all right, back to you, Crystal. Well, thank you. Yeah. Are so, they just afraid of me? Maybe they're just afraid of me. <laughs> Either way, it's good. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Go with it. Go with it. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick station break here. You are listening to the Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM.org Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Aaron Brin about Indigenous archaeology. So. Erin, the work that you've done with students at Salish Kootenai College, um, how, what was that work like in teaching them about archaeology, and did you find ways to instruct them about doing, or I don't want to say doing indigenous archaeology, but approaching archaeology from an indigenous perspective? Yeah, I think my biggest thing was not trying to tell them what archaeology was before I found myself, I guess. See, the biggest thing was when I learned, when I took my intro to archaeology or forensics or uh, Montana, archaeology of Montana, I had, in my brain, it, con- it had to convert everything, right? Right. So it comes in and then my brain does this little thing and then it comes out. And it's, it's something I can use, right? I didn't want to just go through that again with them saying, okay, I know they're going to have to go through it and make it fit for themselves. So why am I going to take what I know is not going to work for them? And just Indian people aren't going to adopt and they're just not, and they shouldn't have to, you know, there's certain things. So, um, so what that means is just like take intro to archaeology. Like you go through the textbook and you just look at the chapters and you say, okay, what, what chapters do we not need to cover? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I'm going to have a lecture where I'm saying, this is why I'm not going to cover it. I think that's a mistake too, because that still says, well, why that still introduces them to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like telling your little kid, Hey, don't say this bad word. Then you say the bad word. Then they're like, well, now they know the bad word, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it, uh, I, I, it just wasn't, and it was easy for at SKC because the quarter system kind of sets it up that way. A lot of textbooks are like 12 chapters, 10 chapters or 15 chapters. They're all kind of set up for the semester system. So for, for a 10 week quarter system, which is really eight weeks because you have midterm and final, it's really easy to like say, well, we, we can take this chapter out. So it kind of designed it. And the beauty of the quarter system is you can teach classes that you might not, it'd be hard to get away with it with a 15 week semester system, like an intro to ethnography class or like a, how to conduct ethnographic interviews course, you know, or, or um, 
North American or in approaches to indigenous archaeology or something like that, or or we have a we have a class set up just for like indigenous approaches to museum curation, right? So uh, it it it's set up a little bit different. So the quarter system kind of allows that for you to get away with certain things, you know. But also, it takes a lot of I don't know if gumption is the word. But you gotta understand the flaws of archaeology, otherwise you're just gonna keep repeating the same problems. So um, you have to be willing to say like certain things. Like I think archaeology spends way too much time on theory. You know, it's like they just pound theory on you, and it's like none of these theories were written or designed by native people and for native people. So. What what could we use? What could we show them that's going to be beneficial? So it takes it takes some. You got to pay attention to kind of the discipline, and, and you but you got to also like um, be willing to like say certain things just don't fit, you know. So hopefully they got something out of it. Again, I'm not a great instructor, um, and I, t- I man, there's very few that I can say it's like they're pretty amazing at their job you know it's hard teaching's hard teaching it's is hard. really it's very it's hard. very hard and yeah. and um i mean ultimately what it came down to is it just wasn't for me for me it's that and it it takes a lot of effort a certain type of resilience to be a teacher that i, I love field work and i i used as much examples as i could in, in my job so yeah and teaching but hopefully I taught some people some good stuff, usable things. That's my biggest thing. I don't care if they learned everything I taught them or what the textbook taught them, but did they get something usable out of it? And hopefully right. they did. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, I'm sure they did. I'm, I'm sure, sure they, they did. did. Yeah. And, and the theory part is often, I think most students at MSU would love someone like you who chucked that part off the syllabus. <laughs> um, I found that I always... I was fascinated by the theory part because to me it meant it affected how you interpreted the same things that were right in front of you, the same set of data. So what your theoretical perspective. And I loved parsing all that, understanding how it influenced how people thought and what their biases were already. But what I found in the end of it all, Aaron, was that none of them worked for me. <laughs> so so well, yeah, it was that... kind of a long haul to to just pick them all apart. And, and um, because I never found that one particular theory really was adequate. And I, I think a, so much of that, of course, with um, archaeology in North America is that, as you said, none of those theories uh, ever took into account an indigenous perspective. So probably that was the big key ingredient missing. Um, so anyway, that was fascinating to hear your, uh, your answer for that. Um, and then Crystal, I think you're going to, you're going to yeah. ask me about his podcast. Right? Yeah. So, so, you know, when you were at Salish Kootenai college, there's an indigenous research center there and there was a podcast started. And so I just wanted to ask you about this podcast that you are, you do, you have done for about a year or so and are still doing. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It's called tribal research specialists. How did this podcast originate? You know, um, who do you do the podcast with and what do you guys talk about? Well, the podcast originally started as part of the indigenous research center, but when all that stuff stopped, People were like, hey, we, we want 
we still want you guys to talk your nonsense. So <laughs> me and my, my buddy and a longtime friend, Dr. Shandine Pete, we decided let's just keep doing it. So we kind of raised a little bit of money and um, uh, got the equipment we needed, which as you know, it's not, not as much as you think, you know, I think it, you can have a bare minimum and then obviously you can grow, get as fancy as you want. Right. But uh, then we started an LLC together called Tribal Research Specialist. And then one day he said, well, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to start the po- a podcast again. What should we call it? And I just said, let's just call it Tribal Research Specialist. <laughs> so um, I'm not really big into like real complicated, fancy names. And and I just. You just want to get out said, what it is. Yeah. I, I actually just said, could we just call it Two Dudes Talking? I like that even better. I mean, it's, it sounds really honest and <laughs> down to earth. I'd listen to that. Yeah. Uh, just like, Heck yeah. Right. You could add with a beer. One of, my, one of the titles, I said, let's call it. Yeah. I, yeah. I said, let's, let's call it uh, some Indian dudes talking about Indian stuff. <laughs> I mean, because uh, that's all it is, you know, yeah. our podcast focus, focus is we talk about, Really, it's so basically what we did is we uh, when native scholars get together, we don't talk about typically, at least in my experience, we don't talk about like stuff we're working on. Right. We don't sit around and say, oh, what are you guys working on? What are you guys working on? Because typically it's like interdisciplinary. Right. So it's like a lot of natural resource scientists or, or social scientists or, or um, social workers or whatever. But we're all engaged in research in Indian country. But what we always end up talking about is how ridiculous academics is towards Native people. <laughs> and, and, and so one day I just said, well, this is what we should do. And, and Sean Dean agreed because we, he, we've been talking. We've been having podcasts since 2001, really, you know, like the way we talk. And it's, yeah. so the way we act and talk on the podcast is how we talk every day. Like that's how we talk. So right. I didn't want kind of an artificial thing. I didn't want a sterilized thing. I, just, I said, I just want to talk about stuff that bothers me or stuff that makes me happy, which is like anything usually related to do with Native culture. So we talk a lot about Indian music. We talk a lot about like language preservation. We talk a lot about kind of make fun of ourselves too in a lot of ways. Um, we obviously talk a lot about the sciences, especially geosciences and um but we, but our, our probably our biggest thing is talking about kind of the, the crazy things we come across in academics, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you had Ben Pease on the podcast a few episodes mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ben Ben's awesome, man. Yeah. I, I did a lot of work with him with the Chicago Field Museum, and um, he's a cool dude. He's a cool guy. Yeah, he you really should is. Have him on. <laughs> we will we have a long list <laughs> we um we work closely with ben as well and and uh we've been working with ben for a long time you know because he started um you know we really started kind of working together with him around fort parker as well and uh so so um we've known ben for a long time yeah he's a great guy he's a great guy yeah so you mentioned um, the Field Museum, and last year you did a presentation for the Extreme History Lecture Series on Crow War Shields, um, many of which are held at the Chicago Field Museum. And um, 
you and some other members uh, of Crow Nation were able to actually go there and view the war shields and probably also some other artifacts at, that were part of the installation they had there, Absalica Women and Warriors. Um, so I I don't know a lot about war shields. Um, I find the shields fascinating because one of the places that I've done research on for my degree is Pictograph Cave, and there are shield-bearing warrior, you know, pictographs, mm-hmm. which there are several places in Montana. We have some of the richest um, rock art sites in uh, North America that have shield-bearing warriors on them. And in so many of those, you you see a two-legged being, you know, depicted holding a very, very large seal, shield. And clearly these shields were decorated with symbols, uh, the symbols vary from what we can see even in the rock art at different sites. And and from what I understand from other people's research is that before the horse was here, before it was reintroduced later um, through Europeans, um, the shields were very, very large and potentially did cover sort of between, you know, the chin and somewhere near the knee and the ankles. And, um, and then the, those shields maybe shrunk in size because once – warriors were mounted on horses. You needed something smaller to carry. So I don't know much more than that other than I think the fact that some of these have been preserved is is fascinating. And we'd love to hear a little bit, if you're willing to share, about what that experience was like for you to see those war shields, those artifacts. Yeah. Um, well, don't cut yourself short. you you know a lot more about shields than 90% of the planet. So All right, I'm taking it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you just, but but so that's you it. Just that's said it. Like, very 95%. We are a select few. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't know anything about shields. And then you went off for a few minutes about shields. <laughs> well, kinda I do have like, to teach stuff. So, like, you know. yeah, kind of sounds like, you know, a little bit about shields. So don't <laughs> cut yourself short. Um, as far as, the field museum experience it's life changing like there's i'm not big into like like uh, i think people use kind of terms like that a little too much a little too art the, tri- they trivialize like events in your life it'll be like everything's life changing or everything's amazing but so i don't use that too often but i will say that going there not the exhibit the exhibit is kind of a whole nother thing like it's an amazing awesome i mean it's like it's emotional you know seeing the exhibit i think anyone any person non-indian or non-crow would go through there and say this is a pretty powerful exhibit they they did a good job with it huh Yeah. yeah well it was a crow woman who who um was the curator of the exhibit. She co-curated it with uh, another lady named Miranda Owens. So Nina Sanders, part of the real bird family and crow. She, she's, she's actually the one that brought me on to help with the shields. Um, but when we, when you walk into the curation or the, yeah, the curation facility downstairs and they open up the, the corridor to see the crow artifacts that from that moment, from the, from the from the very first time that light hits in there, from that moment, my life's never been the same. Mm, wow! And mm. that's the truth. That's like it. So it was a pretty well. 
if I'm being honest, and this might be a little over the top or a little emotional, but like I've been sober ever since I seen him. Oh wow, Aaron, that's powerful. Yeah, so it changed changed everything for me. Changed the way I view the world. Changed the way I see myself, and changed the way I see my family. So mm-hmm. um, I owe a lot to just the moment I seen him. But from that time, it's been different. Everything's been different. I wow. think that relevance of the past and the present, right there, um, that continuous thread, you know, that speaks to it uh, incredibly powerfully. And to me. I'm sure so many people have that life-changing experience knowing that these things are directly related to their ancestors. Um, I, can't, I can't quite imagine what it, what it would be like seeing that in a museum for the first time. Um, are they made of skin? Do they still have paint on them? Do they smell yeah, old? Vibrant. What is they're it like? Vibrant. They're vibrant. They, they look like... They look like um, they were in the hands of their owners the day before you saw them. Oh my gosh! Wow. Uh, wow. So in that in that case, I gotta I gotta give it up to the field museum because they those things have been kept. I think they know what they have. You know the truth. I think mm-hmm. they know what they have, and I I don't think a lot of museums know sometimes the value of certain things. But um, even the people we were working with there, the people that actually work in the the uh, repository, they they were very aware. They were like, "There's something about these things." Um, with that, I mean, it's all kind of like you. It's one of those deals where you gotta believe it in order to really understand it. Um, but when you pick up those shields, it feels like you're picking up a child. Oh, wow. Mm. And I, I mean, it, it sounds cheesy and it kind of sounds like no way, you know, because there are people who have a lot of doubt. But I went in there with a fairly open mind, not knowing what I was going to see. And and when I got to be around those objects, like I said, it changed the way I, I do everything, you know. Hmm. I think when you, I mean, this is the part of archaeology I love, is that objects that were made by somebody. I mean, you you hear musicians talk about that with some instruments, you know, items that were handmade by someone and then used by them. I, I don't think that ever leaves the object, you know, to a great to a degree. And I don't I don't think that's the part that archaeology is good at speaking to, the power of those items. And we see things curated in deep history, going back thousands of years, where people are venerating parts of bodies of their own ancestors or their own ancestral objects. And and so I, I think we understand that on some really basic level. So that, I mean, to me is the best reason to preserve and, and know about these objects is that it can have such a powerful effect on someone like you in the present. So thanks for sharing that with us, Aaron. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it was pretty amazing. I like, it's hard to even explain. Sure. Like, it's really hard to explain. I think you did a great so. job. <laughs> yeah. I try. I think about him every day. Do you? Yeah. yeah like it makes day, me like, want to go see him really bad now, and I know I'll never get to him, <laughs> so I'm really jealous. That's awesome. The exhibit itself was designed to be a traveling exhibit. Oh, oh it was. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Okay, so that, that would be exciting. fantastic to think that that field museum exhibit mm-hmm. that 
was designed with the help of you said her name, but I'm forgetting Nina, Nina Sanders. Sanders, Nina Sanders, yeah. that that may travel and, and maybe we'd be lucky enough that that exhibit would come to Montana. That would be amazing. Yeah, that's the goal. That's the oh. goal is to get as close to Crow people as possible. Oh, fantastic. That would be oh, wonderful. It's exciting to hear. So, Aaron, going back to those to the war shield. So uh, in your presentation that you did with us, I think the most powerful part, I mean, the whole thing was amazing. And it was really thank you. um, We had so much feedback on that presentation. So many people emailed the next day and said how much they enjoyed it and wanted, you know, wanted to watch it again and, and those sorts of things. But at the end of it, you talk about how these war shields were connected to you. So maybe just can you talk a little bit about how how that war shield was related to you? Yeah, there's three of them that I'm a direct three descendant of, of the people who possessed them. Wow. So Spotted Tail, Crazy Sister-in-Law, and Charger Strong. Um, crazy Sister-in-Law, who's the father of Pretty Shield. Okay. Pretty Shield is okay. kind of a well-known yes. crow lady. Yeah. And in fact, in Sims' notes, he kind of hints at the fact that um, that shield – of crazy sister-in-law was given to him by his father so crazy wow. sister-in-law's dad was named little boy strikes with the lance and that's who named pretty shield and he named him after his own shield so it's very possible mm. that the shield of crazy sister-in-law is the very thing pretty shields named after wow it's oh. the very object which that's powerful you know yeah right so I, and, and, you know, that just, you know, that's amazing that you were able to go in there and hold that piece of your history, your direct history, you know, your lineage right in your hand. Mm-hmm. So I can see how that's powerful. And believe it or not, those shields weren't the ones that, like, there was a couple that when I grabbed them, I was like, whoa. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I can, nothing else. I yeah. can only imagine. I can only imagine sort of the energy you know, that might be coming from, from that. So Aaron, I just wanted to kind of follow up with that again and, and say that it, during that presentation, we did the presentation on Zoom. And so we were able to have a really, it was a really nice dialogue after you were done with the presentation with, we had a hundred people watching and, and we're able to chat um, via Zoom, you know, in the little chat box and the dialogue box. And a lot of people were asking, will those Crow War Shields ever be coming back to the Crow Reservation? And so I was just wondering if you could speak to that at all. Well, I think our biggest concern is, of course, of course, all Crow objects belong with Crow people as as that pertains to anybody, right? It's any group of people. Um, our biggest concern, though, would be obviously the care and the handling of these objects has to be appropriate. We just can't arbitrarily go in and grabbing things that that we believe to to hold power, to not represent power. They they are it, you know, which is different. Um, so we, we have to do it meaningful, and we have to do it appropriately. But um, more on, uh, I guess, a technical standpoint is we have to have a facility to house these objects and we have to have the appropriate staff to to run that um now that i'm in a position the position that i am i think i i'm kind of strategically placed to where i can make some of these things happen or at least get the ball rolling whether or not it's it happens during my tenure my goal is to to help create something like that i i sit on 
an advisory committee with the Little Bighorn College right now, and we're planning it's it's help, to help bring funding to um, Crow for a museum for the college. Um, obviously, that uh, it's, it would be a college museum and curation facility. So, um, how that would work with the tribal government remains to be seen, and but hopefully it'll work well with them. And and in that case, then we can go after some of these objects. It's the belief of younger Crow people, younger Crow people, my generation, that we were never afforded the opportunity to refuse these objects. Mm. And um, that was that decision was made to us before we came about. And I think we at least should afford the next generation the chance to, to take it or leave it, you know. That's right. our job as stewards of culture is to at least have it there for them. And after my experience and the experience of all of those who went and seen that exhibit in that, in that curation facility, I would feel horrible if I didn't give my generation and younger the chance to see those things. Yeah. To even just be around them is something, right? you know. Yeah, it's, and I'm, and whether they they accept it and they say oh that's awesome, or whether they just come in and say it means nothing to me and leave, they I at least want to put them in a position where they can make that decision, you know. Right, right. Yeah, it it could sense. have the opportunity to affect someone's life in a positive way, you know. Just to mm-hmm. just it's there. It's the possibility, like you said. It may not be the right time for somebody, or it may not be their thing. But but um, that kind of feeds into. My next question, which is we're we're running a little bit um, towards the end of our program here, but I wanted to bring it back as you have to your role as TIPO, as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, and just sort of ask you, aside from what you just said, what are a couple things that you would love to try to accomplish or set in motion um, while you have this position? And, and how long would you be in this position for is is there any telling or does that well unlike other tribes the tipo is a cabinet head so just like any government you know when the government changes a lot of times the cabinets change right gotcha so uh at the very least four years possibly eight years and um but it was just an opportunity that i didn't think i could pass up so absolutely yeah so what's on your bucket list as tipo couple things oh you'd like my bucket to do. list my bucket list is to create the Upsalogar cultural preservation foundation oh, wow, which will wow. be a non a non-profit arm of the tipo which which is to go towards tribally tri- crow tribal community research projects so say uh, somebody wants to come in and study their tribal allotment and record sites on there and learn how to do those those basic skills of site survey and things like that, that we could fund those projects and we could help assist in those things, but also language preservation. And I want to take the tipple outside of solely the regulatory role and into more of a, a community-based role, which, and I want to create the Sologan Music Archive. Oh, so wow. it, it's a curation facility for music as a cultural resource. So um, wow. on top of that, it's just, I just want to make sure nobody takes advantage of us and our cultural resources. And I want people to be fully aware that we're not an economic development office. So I have no desire for oil fields and pipelines. And But 
I, I'm going to try to do what's best for my people and be an advocate for the resource. Oh, that's great. Fantastic, Aaron. Thanks so much. That's great. Well, Aaron, it's been so wonderful talking with you today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know it is busy to, to visit with us. And good luck in your new position as Crow Tippo. And I'm sure listeners will want to check out your podcast, which is called Tribal Research Specialists. And we will also share that information in the show notes. We'll also share the link to the presentation that you did um, last a few months ago for us as well. So people can check that out if they would like to. So, so thanks, Aaron. Thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Great to see you. Hopefully, we'll see you in April as well at the Montana at the Archeolo- Montana Archaeological Society meeting. So yeah, so again, Erin um, Bryn uh, was who we we're talking to during this week's episode. Thanks to all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope that you can join us again to find out more about the, the dirt, dirt on, on the, the past. past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.